I went to a museum, Red Brother. Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. What they used to do. Stony Knoll rises gently above the prairies, providing impressive views of the valley between North and South Saskatchewan rivers. The name Saskatchewan comes from the Cree name, Kisiskachewanesipi. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. And Jeremy, meaning swift flowing river. Stony Knoll is the settler name for Opwa Simo Chakatina, a sacred site for the young Chippewayans. It lies near the center of a 30 square mile tract selected by their chief in 1876 as part of Treaty 6. The hill stands at the heart of a continuing struggle over history, identity, and justice in Saskatchewan, my home place. In the late 19th century, young Chippewaans and other tribes were struggling to survive, increasing encroachment by European settlers. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald was waging an aggressive campaign to open up the region. As a Canadian Pacific Railway, Railway poster put it, the prairies were the Golden West, a home for all people. Indigenous peoples, however, were clearly not included in that vision. Instead, they were targets of a three-prong assault. Government policies of starvation, which included mass slaughter of buffalo herds, def devastating epidemics from European diseases, and relentless settler infringement on traditional territories. These pressures drove the young Chippewaans to leave their assigned land, called Reserve 107, in search of food. Meanwhile, there were strong currents of indigenous resistance on the prairies. Germaine mentioned this yesterday. The Northwest resistance of 1885 was an uprising by the Métis people who Germaine explained yesterday, and an allied insurrection by Cree and Assiniboine bands against the Canadian colonial government in the territories of Alberta, now called Alberta and Saskatchewan. The resistance was led by Louis Riel, a religiously inspired Métis political leader who sought to preserve the rights, land, culture, and survival of his people. The Canadian military, aided, quick, aided by quick transport from the new Canadian Pacific Railway, squashed the uprising in Batoche, east of Fort Carleton. Riel, Riel surrendered, was tried a month later, and executed for treason on November 16, 1885. Eleven days later, eight other Indigenous men were publicly hung. The Saskatchewan Indian newspaper reported, quote, the day the hangings took place, all of the Indian students at the Battleford Industrial School were taken out to witness the event. 
to remind them what would happen if one of them made trouble with the crown, and to provide a lasting reminder of the white man's power and authority." End quote. The government set about punishing other tribes and individuals for alleged participation in the uprising, and this included the young Chippewaians. On May 3, 1897, the Canadian Superintendent General of Indian Affairs recommended that the Department of the Interior regain control of young Chippewaian treaty land, arguing Reserve num Number 107 has, quote, never been taken possessive excuse me, never been taken possession of nor occupied by the young Chippewaians who also took part in the rebellion of 1885 and for the most part left the country thereafter or became amalgamated with other bands, end quote. That is, of course, full of falsehoods. Thus, the federal government, without consultation or compensation, assigned young Chippewaian land to expound the expand the boundaries of a reserve for Mennonite settlers who are actively being recruited to help domesticate the prairies. In 1892, seven years after the Northwest Uprising, the first Mennonite settlers had arrived in Saskatchewan and built the first church in 1896 at Eigenheim, some 14 miles from Stony Knoll. Its founding pastor was Peter Regeer, my brother-in-law's great-grandfather. In the years that followed, more churches were built on or near Reserve 107, including a Lutheran church right on top of Stony Knoll. Between 1923 and 1929, some 22,000 Mennonite refugees from the Russian Revolution that I mentioned yesterday came to the area. The largest influx of Mennonite immigrants in Canadian history, altering the social landscape, landscape decidedly. These Ruslander immigrants included all four of my grandparents. They had fled horrific violence in Ukraine and Russia and had left behind many family members who did not survive the Soviet regime. They were grateful to have arrived in Saskatchewan, yet also carried significant, if largely unexamined, trauma. And they were entirely unaware of the violent context of Indigenous disenfranchisement that had opened up their new home just a generation before. These are my people. Thus, Stony Knoll area became a place where two traumatized people lived side by side, though mostly segregated from and ignorant of each other. Mennonites, long history of religious dissidents, persecution, fleeing old world violence, settled on Cree land and set about building prosperous farms. Cree communities struggled to survive, not only their historic disenfranchisement, but ongoing discrimination and racial injustices from Canadian colonial society. Our entangled story. Today, my oldest sister, 
lives adjacent to Beardy's and Okimasa's First Nation Reserve, just a few miles from Stony Knoll. This is the farm her husband inherited from his parents. My family's history is also deeply in intertwined with a Mennonite boarding school in nearby Rostern. You saw the awesome jacket I was wearing yesterday. That is from Rostern Junior College, grade 12. We're deeply entwined up in this. Many of my relatives also live in Rostern. Many Mennonites still live and around, in, excuse me, and around Reserve 107. I've walked Stony Knoll with colleagues working for decolonization and justice who understand that this small hill is a microcosm of the wider settler story that has left no corner of Turtle Island untouched. Our responsibility. But our tenures on this land have been vastly different. Yeah, there's a punctuation. If the span of human inhabitation of the Saskatchewan Valley were a 24-hour clock, my Mennonite people would appear only in the last 15 minutes. Unfortunately, for most of those 125 years, we have lived autonomously from our Indigenous neighbours, disinterested in their seniority of their tenure, ambivalent about their demands for restorative justice, and unconscious of the huge footprint we have left over so short of a time. If we wish to re-inhabit this Saskatchewan River Valley, which is the goal of our watershed discipleship work, we must shed the privileges inherent in settler unknowing and embrace a double task. First, we must learn the indigenous stories held by the land and the people around us and the sustainable native life ways that persist among us. Second, we need to revise our own narratives which for so long have been devised and distorted by various strands of colonial supremacy. Without doing this work, we will be unable to forge respectful and just relationships with indigenous communities around us. A place to start is to learn indigenous origin stories, which are about emergence or placement on traditional lands. In other words, creator put them there. This contrasts with our settler origin stories, which are about discovery, discovery, <laughs> migration, and above all, a recreation in a new world to which we helped ourselves. A good example of the latter pretense is how, in 1670, King Charles II gave roughly half of Canada, and then some, to a private corporation. The Hudson's Bay Company was granted a charter over this stunningly vast territory, defined by the watersheds of all rivers and streams flowing into the Hudson Bay. Now Bob, where is Bob? Is Bob in here? That, all of Hudson Bay watershed, is a big ass blanket. We are going to be doing the blanket exercise together. 
It is huge. This was England's boldest deployment, boldest deployment of the doctrine of discoveries, principle of contiguity, which stipulated that colonizers who discovered a river mouth could claim hegemony over the entire watershed of that river. Kat Friesen, who so wanted to be with us and has the terrible flu bug that I think is keeping Cheryl and Justice from us, wrote in our Watershed Discipleship book, which is also in the bookstore, that this principle was later used similarly by the U.S. to claim huge domains of the Mississippi and Columbia River drainages. For 200 years, the Hudson Bay Company operated a commercial monopoly throughout Rupert's land, thoughtfully named after the king's royal cousin, though neither of them would ever set foot in this place. The HBC, Hudson Bay Company, set about establishing a strategic network of trading forts, which doubled as colonial outposts. As part of this effort in July 1691, English fur trader Henry Kelsey became the first recorded European to come into the Saskatchewan Valley, led, of course, by Cree guides and following their foot trails. And of course, this was prior to the advent of the horse on the prairies. Like all early foreign explorers, Kelsey's navigation completely relied on the deep literacy of lands and waters developed by indigenous communities over millennia, and he survived only because of their technologies and economy. His group ascended the Saskatchewan River by canoe, then turned up the Carrot River and came into the vast parklands of what is now called Saskatchewan. He is celebrated in settler histories as the first white man to encounter, encounter the great store of buffalo and the silver-haired grizzlies. But his mission was to colonize. Over the following decades, Kelsey was key to that expanding project, and in 1718 was appointed by the British as governor of all Hudson's Bay settlements. Some 250 years later, my father's people, who I spoke of yesterday, settled outside the village of Kert River to work the land at a latitude almost identical to what they had left in Ufa. Growing up, we visited our many ends relatives there at Christmas and summer, but we were all oblivious to how that river carries the story of Kelsey's inauguration of the English colonization of Saskatchewan. Nor did my people have any relationship with nearby Cree communities at the Shoal Lake or Red Earth First Nation reserves along the Carrot River. We have so much to learn. My paternal great-grandfather, Francisco Agustin Mendoza, came to the New World alone from the Azores Islands off of Portugal. I'm not sure what the political and economic push factors were. Tenuous family tradition has that he was dodging a draft 
and there certainly were peasant revolts in Portugal in 1846. All I know is that he came to Veracruz, Mexico in 1848. I inherited his leather-embossed sea chest from my grandmother. It's in our house. And shortly after that, he came up to California. I assume that the gold rush is what brought him to Sonora in the Sierra foothills. This predominantly Mexican village was one of the many racially segregated miners' camps that sprang up in the diggings. There he met and married Maria Nunez, who was born in 1829 in Mexico and sometime thereafter came up to Alta California. We don't know why or how. If Mendoza tried his hand at mining, it didn't take. He is listed in the first U.S. Census of Sonora, California as a gardener. His family remained in Sonora for the rest of the century. Their second daughter, Maria Rosario, married Luis Guerrena, a saloon keeper, and was later active in the Native Daughters of the Golden West. Their daughter, Ines Belle, was my paternal grandmother. <clears throat> In the early 20th century, my abuela Inez married a gringo, Ed Myers, a German-American tire salesman whose father had worked his way west with the railroads. Economic tides swirled them from Foothill, Sonora, to urban San Francisco, where they endured the hard times of the Depression. As a boy, my dad shared a room with his abuela Maria, who still spoke mostly Spanish. After the early death of her husband, Inez followed my dad down to Los Angeles, where he supported her in a small apartment. She knew almost no one and was completely out of place, especially at my maternal grandparents' house, decidedly upper class, my mother's parents, an elegant home, a managerial class. Inez Bella was completely at sea. She was a devout Catholic, which seemed bizarre to us five kids since we were unchurched and my dad, oh, there we go. Uh, my dad, though an altar boy in his youth, had long ago bailed. We called her Gama. She seemed depressed and grumpy most of the time, never spoke of the past to us. Then again, we never asked, ever. Why would a suburban adolescent preoccupied with baseball and his neighborhood lawn mowing franchise be interested in a fading California legacy? I could kick myself. This is one of my uh, most treasured possessions right here. It's a little leather bolsita that I discovered tucked away in my dad's bureau after he died in 1991 during the first Gulf War. In it are two Spanish coins, a two reales copper dated 1852 and a five centem from 1870. When I inquired, my mom related the family story, presumably passed on by Gama Inez, perhaps after a rare drink. The purse had allegedly been given to her grandmother, Inez Nunez, by the famous California bandido, 
Joaquin Murrieta. <laughs> According to a tradition, a mix of foggy history and heroic legend, Murrieta was an immigrant Mexican miner beaten by Yankees in the gold fields who then raped his wife. Thereafter, he roamed all over the state, famously robbing gringos and distributing the proceeds to disinherited Californios, a bona fide Golden State Robin Hood. Interestingly, the Murrieta myth was really born with the publication in 1854, 1854, of the life and adventures of Joaquin Murrieta, a swashbuckling romance with a social edge. Its author was John Rollin Ridge, also known as Yellowbird, born in Georgia to a Cherokee father. After killing a man who had stolen his horse, Ridge had fled to California, where he identified with both Mexican and indigenous Californians who had been displaced from their land by white settlers. Right? One story resonates with another in a different part of the world. Amazingly, this historic novel, more than 150 years old, was just republished by Penguin Books with an introduction by Xuan Shu, a Chinese-American scholar who calls it a classic American story of anti-racist insurrection. Some of you have heard me talk about how the Murrieta myth was later perpetuated, obliquely, if largely domesticated, in 20th century popular culture, first in the romantic Zorro pulp novels of the early part of the 20th century, then reworked as Batman comic books, then a full-blown Hollywood version in the popular Zorro Disneyland shows, from which the Lone Ranger was only derivative. Man, I loved watching Zorro as a kid. I became him every Halloween. Our Ventura River watershed here um, was still predominantly Mexican and Chumash in the 1850s. And the bandido famoso allegedly retreated right here in the local foothills of the Santa Inez Mountains. I'm hoping, Matthew, that this site can be part of one of your future tours. <laughs> Today we can see Murrieta Peak from our study window and we like to hike the nearby Murrieta Trail. I enjoy imagining him camped out in one of those surviving and still remote oak groves. But the trail of my own ancestors has run cold. My dad was an only child, and everyone from the California side is long gone. My dad was frustrated in, in his attempts to reconstruct more of his family story. We went multiple times up to Sonora to look in the museum and in the church, defeated by lost or destroyed records. That's how it is in America. Our immigrant identities are invariably fractured and dispersed by the incessant tides of imperial history and its discontents. All the more reason to cling to them, those fragments, reading them like pot shards, like this. And this, a tantalizing old photo shows my grandmother Inez Belle 
as a child, a little child, standing next to an unidentified native woman in front of a teepee. Would have been from around 1900. No explanation on the back. No context. No story. Talk about a pot shard. The local people of Sonora were and are the Miwok, and they didn't live in teepees. So might this have been one of those old-timey Pioneer Day festivals where the Indians were put on display and stereotyped? Or is it possible that my grandmother had a native nanny? I just don't know, and there's no one to ask. You see, friends, the questions we're asking this week are also relevant for non-white settlers. But I do know that my Mendoza's family history was entangled with the forces of the gold rush, which was a disaster for indigenous Californians. As the world rushed in, settler land squatting and massacres of native communities were widespread throughout Northern California, documented in agonizing detail uh, in Benjamin Madley's recent book, American Genocide. You see, gold fever also fundamentally shaped American colonial policy in the mid-19th century. In 1850, the U.S. Senate authorized three commissioners to negotiate treaties with all of California's Indian tribes, largely in order to secure native secession of potentially gold-bearing lands. Despite their utter lack of knowledge about California Indians or their cultural practices, between 1851 and uh, 1852, three Eastern commissioners, first time in California, traveled around the state negotiating treaties with random groups that rarely corresponded to actual tribal or clan groups, often without translators. They're, they divided California into 18 random regions that you see here, completely arbitrary, carefully excluding gold-bearing country. As historian Robert Heiser summarized it, taken together, one cannot imagine a more poorly conceived, more inaccurate, less informed, and less democratic process. And yet, despite all that, the 18 treaties that were made covering in haphazard fashion most of the state except for the Southeast Desert, despite all that, in executive session, the US Senate refused to ratify them and ordered them filed away under an injunction of secrecy that wasn't removed for 50 years. A key characteristic of settler unknowing that we spoke about Monday is that most of us are neither literate in nor frankly interested in treaty history or culture, and we harbor no sense of accountability to these covenants or lack of them. Elaine will speak to that tomorrow. Like her ancestors, my Mendoza clan up in Sonora in the mid-19th century was likely oblivious to the systematic theft of native land that was breaking like a tidal wave over California during that first decade of U.S. hegemony. Meanwhile, here in Chumash country, uh, there were no treaties, only the displacing legacy of missionization and Mexican land grants. Elaine and I have lived here for 15 years now in Ventura County, and we only recently learned about the 1851 Treaty of Tejon, the only one involving Chumash signatories. It originally protected some 1.2 million acres 
of the Central Valley and foothills surrounding present-day Bakersfield. Iwi uh, Hinmu, Pine Mountain. Thank you. Awahonmu, sacred center of the Shumash cosmos, was a predominant boundary marker of one corner of this land. Indians from as far away as the Owens Valley were brought to the Tejon Reservation in a typical omnibus relocation. But the Tejon Treaty, too, was never ratified because the California legislature didn't want anything to stand in the way of further immigration and exploitation of natural resources. The federal government then systematically reduced the Tejon Reservation from 1.2 million acres down to 50,000 acres and then reduced it again to 25,000 acres while California reorganized its Indian affairs under one overseer by the name of E.F. Beale. In 1863, the U.S. further undermined what remained of the reservation by issuing a patent to Rancho El Tejon. Guess to who? E.F. Beale. The native residents were left to fend for themselves and most left, though a few found work as ranch hands, on Beale's 300,000 acre spread. Another blanket removed. Back in Sonora, the Tuolumne Band of Indians has survived somewhat better than the Venturena Shumash. They are a federally recognized tribe of Yokuts and Miwok in Tuolumne County. In September each year, the Rancheria holds an acorn festival and intertribal gathering. My ancestors, my dad used to say, ruefully, should have stole land instead of horses. Only half in jest, particularly when his one lone real estate deal investment went sour. My dad was intoning a common refrain among old California families about how they were systematically disinherited of land and influence during the first decades of American rule. I learned recently from a UCLA historian that many California families have similar tales of something they received from Murrieta. These sorts of family legends exemplify the popular mythologies that preserve suppressed truths of history's underside, such as Murrieta's social banditry. So pay attention to family legends and pay attention to the affect of how they're told and how they're related. Is it laughter? Is it sadness? Is it disassociation? Is it shame? We don't know the social histories of our places, certainly not here in California, not about Mexican California, and surely not about indigenous California. I'll close with this story, which I told last year. When I was growing up um, in Los Angeles in the, in the 1960s, my family used to go camping on the Gaviota Coast, then ranch country, which remains one of the last relatively undeveloped areas of chaparral habitat left in coastal Southern California. It's also the heart of Chumash country. My time among those oak-studded canyons and pristine beaches made a huge psychic imprint on my adolescent consciousness, connecting me more to my sense of place as a fifth-generation Californian than any other experience in my life. And it was there that I had my first exposure as a suburban teenager growing up in an unchurched home 
to the legacy of missionary colonization. A gaggle of families were camped out in Tahiguas Canyon, former site I later learned of the Shumash village of Tahiwa. My dad, who loved to explore areas of old California, called our attention one day to a nearby Old Coast live oak adorned with an arbor glyph thought to be a Shumash rendering of a neophyte, that is to say a Shumash person brought into the mission system by force or necessity, taking communion from a Spanish priest, probably dated sometime to the early 1800s, seven generations ago. I snapped this photo of the so-called Indian tree, and it's hung on my wall for 40 years. I doubt the tree exists any longer, and I wouldn't be able to find out since the canyon long has since been privatized into a trophy ranch. But this image lingers, and it haunts me still. We settlers are deeply complicit in what has transpired on the lands we have come to to stay on. But before we immediately spiral into the shame cycle when we talk about complicity, let's talk about the etymology. Complicit and complicate, as you can see, both come from the Latin complicare, to fold together, like we're going to be folding blankets in this exercise, entangled in colonizations past and present, its traumas and its privileges, its losses and its gains for some, traces whose inventory we are trying to reconstruct this week. Of course, we settlers can choose not to know. But Hopi Miwok writer Wendy Rose promised during the Columbus Quincentenary back in 1992 that this history clings to us regardless. Nothing of the past 500 years was inevitable, she says. Every raised fifth, fist, every brandished weapon, it was a choice, the decision to censor the native truth, a choice, the decision to manipulate the knowledge of American history, a choice. With my relations around me, I go into mourning, but I go angry and alive and listening and remembering, I do not vanish, I do not forget, I will not let you forget. It's worth pointing out, particularly after our beautiful opening this morning, that a similar exhortation lies at the heart of both sacred meals of the Abrahamic tradition, the Passover Seder for Jews and Eucharist for Christians. Remember what has been dismembered is repeated like a litany, summing up the deep wisdom of biblical faith, the product of a people all too familiar with distress and displacement and near disappearance. These rituals are both invitation and imperative. Join yourself to this meal and don't forget. Without such rituals, we are doomed, all of us, to drift on forever or be drowned by the tides of empire. Refugees, all of us. To build a different future, to embrace personal and political decolonization, we must face our past, especially the difficult parts which is just what the late great poet laureate Maya Angelou said in her famous On the Pulse of Mourning. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again.
You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh